0: Hello and welcome to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast. I'm Michael Hainsworth. The Federal Finance Minister will rise in the House of Commons March 19th to present his 2019 budget. Minister Bill Morneau will be facing down the prospect of a slowing global economy at a time when Canada is running at virtually full capacity in a rising interest rate environment. The C.D. Howe Institute has presented its shadow budget, a document outlining what the Institute believes should be the priorities of the Canadian government. It contains a number of measures to attract foreign workers and investment while cutting costs. It's an effort to set the stage for a return to surpluses. Joining us now in studio is the report's co-author and president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, Bill Robson, and from his Queens University remote office in Phoenix, Arizona, economist Don Drummond from the School of Public Studies. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you. And uh, uh, Don, thank you very much for being part of this. Uh, Don ha- has been a major force for good uh, in the CD House's fiscal research program. And um, I don't mean to uh, imply there's any responsibility from him for anything uh, he would disown
0: in this document. But uh, Don, we really appreciate the contribution. Thank you.
2: Oh, no, thank you, Bill.
0: Well, Don, let's start with you then, if you can give us your state of Canada's economy, because the outlook for interest rates through 2020 is we're only going higher.
2: So my take is a little bit different, it would seem, from most people. And I'm kind of surprised at that, because as you said in the introduction, the slowing global economy and throughout the world, and there's hardly any exceptions, everybody seems to be interpreting this as a cyclical event. And I just think there's a fundamental failure to grasp that we're heading into a sustained period of lower growth rates and many economies and certainly Canada's are full capacity. And we will for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years slow down in my view, a path of about one and a half percent economic growth. The Department of Finance to its credit has lowered its longer term forecast to 1.7%. So they seem to recognize that, but even I see a lot of private sector forecasts Still featuring two percent or even stronger two percent growth, and interpreting anything slower than that as being something to be reacted to on the policy side—that they need to provide some kind of fiscal stimulus—and I think that's absolutely wrong. It's essential to get the right depiction of the economy. We are at full capacity. We're heading to a period of slower growth. Whatever we're going to do to combat that has to be done on economist dry terms on the supply side, the productive capacity side. It should not be done by trying to goose up the economy by monetary or fiscal policy
1: stimulus. I'm totally with Don on that. I mean, just to elaborate a bit, the point that he made about the economy being at full capacity, it means that growth going forward is going to be constrained by demographics, uh mainly the number of people coming into the workforce uh, by how much capital each of those potential workers has to work with and then how much extra productivity growth we get from just working smarter and getting a bit more out of every uh, unit of effort and, and and dollar of capital investment that we make and when you think about it that way there's potential for upside surprises uh, our investment rate might go up uh, because of sort of the need for more capital to supplement less quickly growing workforce uh, maybe there's a bit of a productivity uh, boost that's uh, lurking out there somewhere. But if you look at the trends over the last uh, years and, and even going back decades in Canada, it's hard to make a case for anything like that in your baseline scenario. And so one of the key uh, elements in framing this shadow budget was to look at that uh, slow growth environment uh, as Don was just saying and not looking for anything to stimulate demand but thinking about ways in which we could encourage people to work uh, longer or maybe come into the workforce if they weren't there already some things that might boost investment and maybe we we'll get a productivity bonus from that.
0: I can imagine as well we're looking at the debt that we're racking up along the way I think it was 2019 originally that the Federal government had told us we should be starting to see uh, balanced budgets, if not surpluses. Uh, You're working our way towards a a surplus in what, 2020, 2021, based upon this shadow document I'm looking at?
1: Well, yes, it's not a very aggressive uh, return to budget surplus. Uh, Don... Uh, and I were discussing earlier, uh, given the fact that the federal debt ratio isn't all that challenging, uh, the interest uh, payments are not that huge compared to federal revenues. It's not as though we're in a fiscal crisis the way we were back in the 1990s. Um, But I do think that there is a lot of virtue to getting back towards a budget surplus. We've talked a bit about the point we're at at the cycle, uh, so I don't need to repeat that. But I do think that the discipline of of forcing every advocate of a spending increase or a tax cut to justify how they're going to pay for it is very helpful. Uh, I think Bill Morneau would really benefit from that right now, and he doesn't have it because the government's indicated that the bottom line's not a major constraint. And one other thing I'll, I'll quickly slide, and we don't make a lot of this uh, in the shadow budget, but if you think about the amount of money there is uh, in Canada to invest in the things that might boost productivity, machinery and equipment investment, roughly $75 billion a year, intellectual property investments, a bit more than $30 billion a year. Uh, you look at a twenty billion Billion dollar swing in government uh, borrowing r- relative to those magnitudes. And it's quite significant. I mean, it's a major drain on Canadian saving, and we could put some of that money to better use.
0: I'm looking here at the prospect of debt charges expected to rise by more than 25% over the course of the next two years. So, uh, Don, is it your assessment as well that we need to get our fiscal house in order before we find ourselves with the prospect of our biggest trading partner sliding into recession in, say, 2021?
2: Well, they'll show that we're all become victims of our history. So I joined the Federal Department of Finance in 1977 and worked on budgets through 2000. So, what comes to my mind, as Bill said in the mid 1990s, as the Assistant Deputy Minister of Fiscal Policy, crafting the budgets of those days, I was facing a net debt GDP ratio of 70%. And I was facing 30% of revenues being sucked off to pay interest on the public debt. That percentage is loud, less than 10%. The net public debt ratio is just over 30. So, I think from an economist and an economics perspective, it is fair to say it's scandalous to be running significant deficits where the economy is. But we have to recognize we're not in a chaos crisis kind of situation. They they need and they should move. I think in many respects that we're not political scientists or politicians by any means. I think they have much of a political issue with this budget. They did campaign in 2015 on balancing the budget by now. And they're not really even moving in the right direction on that. They show it in their projections, but the actual results don't show that. And I think they're discovering what all the politicians discovered before them. It's a lot more fun to cut taxes and give away money than it is to do the inverse on both sides, particularly when you're coming to an election. So Mm -hmm. I think politics will have as much of an impact inside the Department of Finance, inside the cabinet room and developing this budget which is just half a year before an election where do you want to be this is maybe a voice this is not the time to come out for austerity it's not the time to generate pessimistic messages and there may be some temptations to give away goodies Although, fortunately, to the credit of the people of Canada and elsewhere, it's proving harder and harder to bribe people with their own money, so that might put some constraints on them.
0: Well, haven't we already done a lot of that? You know, the 2018 budget came in with an expected 5% plus growth in revenue and expenses, but that underestimated the strength of our economy with about a $4 billion cash injection above what was expected. They spent that money. Are we going to see the, the fruits of that spending anytime soon, Bill?
1: Well I think that uh, the the that's kind of the backdrop to our recommendation that they should get back to budget balance uh which is that clearly uh it's difficult I think for the finance minister to say that there's anything special about a deficit of uh ten billion or fifteen billion uh when when uh you know, clearly they they haven't paid much of a price, either economically that we know about or or politically for having allowed the deficits to exceed their projections up to this point. Um, Don makes the point, and I think it's worth uh, emphasizing, that bribing people with their own money or running this kind of fiscal policy isn't obviously politically advantageous. I mean, each individual decision feels fun, but if you look over time, Canada and internationally, uh, federally or provincially, you don't tend to see much reward for running deficits. Um, it, it's, it tends not to be a problem until suddenly it is a problem. Um, I do want to uh, make an additional point about the deficits they've been running. The campaign commitment uh, to run deficits wasn't just time limited. It was also related to federal government spending on infrastructure. And the federal government just does not spend all that much on infrastructure. And in fact, they haven't done a very good job of spending on infrastructure. What they have been spending on is various types of transfers. And I think that that's uh, worth underlining because if they actually had been able to get a whole lot more uh, money into airports and ports and interprovincial transportation, the various things that the federal government is uniquely able to do, uh, I think that would have paid some significant benefits for the Canadian economy, uh, and they haven't actually been doing that. So it's a bit of a problem that they justified the deficits in the first place with regard to something that sounded good, but actually hasn't really been happening.
0: Well, you're calling on um, greater transparency for the money that's already been earmarked. As you point out, a, a vast, the vast majority of the money that's been earmarked for infrastructure projects at the federal level still hasn't been spent. There's an opportunity for greater transparency and putting more of that money to work faster.
1: Well, the speed is important. Uh, one of the things that uh, is is a bit ironic that the federal government uh, is uh, putting in place various measures, and we'll see with regard to the latest uh, uh, Bill, on on resource development, how this goes, uh, a lot of measures that are making it harder to accomplish major projects. And if you ask them about that, they'll say, well, there are all sorts of processes that you need to go through. You have to make sure that the environmental consequences aren't adverse. You have to make sure that the rights and interests of various parties are properly respected, that the appropriate kinds of consultations happen. Well, when your main main avenues for infrastructure spending are working with the provinces and the municipalities, you can't Uh, just sort of assume all those things away the provinces and municipalities have their own processes you don't want to be short-circuiting those so inevitably if you're going to be working through more than one level of government the whole process is going to be slower than it would be otherwise and that's one of the reasons why we just haven't been seeing the kind of big boost in infrastructure spending that it sounded as though it was going to happen during the election campaign.
0: Don, you pointed out that this could very well be as much a political document as it would be a fiscal document. I'm wondering if Bill Robson's running for election here. I'm looking at the shadow (laughs) budget reducing the number of people subject to the highest tax rate, by doubling the threshold from 210000 to 420000
2: Well, that's probably, with no disrespect to Bill, more of an economic <laughs> measure than a political uh, measure, kind of like it myself. But that, uh, obviously, is sort of why do you rob the bank? That's where the money is. Where the money is and where the votes are is more in the middle of the income distribution. And, and they, too, I will add, they actually face the highest marginal tax rates. And this is another area where the CD Howe has done excellent work on that sort of marginal effective tax rate, how much of your last dollar do you devote in taxes? And the highest taxed people from that marginal perspective are the people in the thirty to 60,000 range where you're getting taxed back at a whole range of benefits, such as the child tax uh, benefits. So there's a lot of Canadians. And, and this is this is kind of the tougher situation when you look at it. We're running deficits, but we're very highly taxed. Um, maybe inappropriately on the composition and maybe we could keep the tax burden somewhere it is and shift it more to the consumption-based taxes, particularly if they can be associated with the environment. But from the income tax perspective, particularly for a personal income tax, pretty much through the whole income tax perspective, we are very highly taxed in Canada. And I think that really does have impacts on the economy. I, I know myself that if I'm asked to do something, the very first thought I have is, do I really want to do it? Because I'm going to get keep less than half of it. I, I think I'm subject to an illusion didn't seem to bother me too much when I only got to get 52% of it, but now it's even less than that. I think that really does come and influence your behavior. I
1: might uh, just uh, jump in on on both the political theme and also what Don said about more taxes on consumption and less on income. Uh, If you want proof that this is not a political document, then (laughs) you could look at what we were proposing to do on the GST, namely have a higher rate on transportation fuels. That's Uh, more of a greening of our taxes. I think it would be an effective measure. We didn't do a calculation of exactly what kind of impact on carbon dioxide emissions uh, doing something like this would have, but I am confident asserting that if you had a higher rate on uh, transportation fuel as part of the GST, it would have a greater impact than what we're likely to see from the uh, mishmash, uh, somewhat incoherent and, and, and likely to continue changing uh, mix of measures that's uh, currently before us. And I, I thought it was worth having that in the shadow budget to make a fundamental point. If we're serious about uh, reducing carbon dioxide emissions, you do have to do things that are gonna change consumer behavior. If you want to do it in a way that is going to minimize some of the problems you have of international competitiveness and some of the other distortions that creep in when you try to do it through some of the carbon taxes and other things that we're seeing, uh, the GST is actually not a bad tool. It's not perfect, but it's it's one of the better ones that we have. Uh, And so we recommend a a significant hike in the GST rate on transportation fuels. And if you ask me, would that bring the yellow vests out? uh, I would say yes, it probably will. But if we're serious, and it really is a challenge for the government to decide which way they're going on this, if we are actually serious about doing something to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, this is the type of thing you need to do. Uh, And so that's why it's there. And it certainly helps to finance some of the other things in our shadow budget that we think would be good.
0: But Don, wouldn't that uh, crimp the consumption and and therefore slow our economic growth?
2: Well, not necessarily crimping total consumption. First, I, I feel compelled to point out I, I'm more of a believer in the carbon tax than the CD how it indicated. That's my problem with doing it through the GST is that's a fairly narrow base, particularly in the transportation. So there's inefficiency involved in that, but we're definitely recommending going in the same direction. But the theory is that uh, you would recycle that money and, and so a substantial degree in the side of budget through personal and corporate tax relief. And we saw that. I mean, at least we have the problem with economics is they don't allow us to perform experiments on people. They kind of keep us in in our offices. But we do have a couple of real life experiences. And British Columbia is a very good one where they did introduce the carbon tax. And at least initially, it's got a little muddied over time. But initially, they gave all of it back into income tax relief, corporate and mainly personal and the economy did fine in fact the economy grew faster than its neighboring jurisdictions we we can study a real-life example of what happened when you did have that tax shifting when British Columbia introduced the carbon tax and the economy just is fine in fact if we compare how their jurisdiction did relative to comparable other ones provinces and elsewhere they actually grew faster. So, no, you do, you can do this in a way that doesn't take me from households, but it does change their behavior, hopefully, away from consuming carbon-intensive items to consuming things that are less carbon-intensive or investing.
0: Bill, your shadow budget reduces the corporate income tax rate by two percentage points. You want to bring it down to 13% from 15%, and you want to do it right away.
1: Yes. In the uh, aftermath of the fall statement when the government uh, increased uh, tax deductibility uh, uh, for investments, uh, accelerated capital cost allowances. Um, there was a pretty strong sense of, of satisfaction that they had addressed a lot of the competitiveness issue that we face against the United States, particularly uh, after the tax changes there that came into effect last year. Um, and I think that was an important thing to do, but. Um, It's by no means the end of the story. Corporate income tax rates have tended to come down uh, in a lot of places, including in the United States. And although you want to pay attention to the speed with which people can write things off, because that's very important to determining where a company is going to is going to want to create, locate activity if they're thinking about an investment, our side of the border versus the US side of the border, um, that, that does help a lot. But the difference in rates matters for a number of other reasons as well. Uh, if your rates are higher, it's less attractive to earn income in your jurisdiction. Uh, And it's not just a matter of where you report income and transfer pricing and some of the other games that uh, people can play. Um, There are important real activities that go along with that. And Canada has, notwithstanding what the government did in the fall update with uh, tax depreciation, there's been quite a strong signal that economic and business priorities don't register all that strongly with this government. And uh, we think that that message is being heard, uh, unfortunately, both inside and outside Canada, and that it's important for them to continue to work on the corporate income tax side where what was once a significant advantage for Canada, uh, groundwork that Don uh, helped lay when he was at the Federal Department of Finance, a lot of that has been eroded now, and it's not enough to say, okay, well, we've got faster depreciation. And so therefore that's going to solve the problem. We should be working on more fronts than just that one.
2: The last budget I was involved in was the 2000 budget. And that is the one that started the ball rolling and lowering the corporate income tax. It was, I thought it was a huge political risk at the time. It actually turned out to be quite positive that Seems Canadians are smarter when we gave them credit. They recognize that uh, if you want jobs, you need corporations. And if you want corporations, you have to have a competitive tax environment. But I got to say, I'm disappointed in their reaction to that. And I, I would understand why there's a skepticism of the policy authorities. We brought down that corporate tax rate. It went below the United States. We had a period in the early 2000s where the dollar was appreciating, which was lowering the price of machinery equipment. Investment just didn't do very much. And you look at sectors like the mining sector where they should have from a tax perspective been put in a position to take over the world instead of they just sold out to the world. They almost disappeared. And now we've got the gold sector being almost one of the last one to go. So it's one of those things, maybe it's a cliche expression, the necessary condition, but it didn't seem to be sufficient. There seems to be something else wrong. That's held back the corporate tech sector. And quite frankly, a lot of the money the tax relief has gone into the accelerated depreciation. And I've never quite understood why business is so drawn in by that measure that over time, it really doesn't change your position. If you've got a 10 year life to your asset, you can write it off five years, you can write it off 10 years, you end up in the same position I get it. It's better to have the money sooner. If you have uh, borrowing constraints, it certainly helps. There's a little bit of value from time, but it's not that big a deal. And I think there's something more fundamental that needs to happen to improve that competitiveness and the strength and investment in the private sector in Canada.
1: One of the arguments that people have made against lowering the rates is that it sort of rewards old investment. Uh, if you allow faster write-offs, then uh, by definition, it's going to be new investment that's going to get the benefit. Um, but I, uh, I'm glad that kind of argument hasn't uh, carried the day in the past. It didn't during the period Don's talking about on corporate income tax cuts, and it didn't uh, when it came to personal income tax cuts, people could have made the argument. In fact, now I'm wondering why you didn't hear it that that was rewarding people who had gotten educated in the past or developed skills in the past. And we should be only thinking about, uh, uh, looking forward. Um, it does make sense to get the rates down because, um, uh, aside from what Don just said about, yes, depreciation, it's the time value. That's really the important thing. Um, the, uh, Overall size of the tax uh, rate burden does affect an awful lot of decisions. Um, a lot of these things, including tax depreciation itself, are much more salient if rates are high. The lower your rates are, the less the differences in depreciation matter, uh, and, and the less the differences that happen between different types of sectors uh, matter. I will just come back, and, and Don may wish to reply on this, and say that one of the projects we have at the C.D. Howe Institute looks at investment rates per person in Canada versus in other countries. And during the period that uh, Don was talking about, our relative performance did improve. Uh, It wasn't the kind of blowout performance that I think a lot of people would have liked to see uh, and and certainly, in, in retrospect,, uh, it would have been nice if ca- Canadian investment had been stronger then because we've not seen as much productivity growth as we probably would have had. But in fact, our relative performance did improve. And uh, I think that it's worth looking at that again because since the mid uh, the middle of this decade, uh, our relative investment performance has just gone off a cliff. Now, partly that's as a result of bad uh, news affecting the resource sector, uh, but a lot of it is self-inflicted damage as well. And there's some policy things that we could do that could turn that around, including on the corporate tax side.
2: Well, I mean, I, I come back to what fascinated me in that period from about 2002 to 2007, where we're getting unprecedented retained earnings in the corporate tax sector. And, and in fact, if you had done the chart to retain earnings and ended in 2002, I guarantee you'd had to change the scale of your diagram that the corporate sector is doing so well and yet they didn't invest it. And I kept wondering and wondering about that and I was given the opportunity, what was then called the Canadian Council of Chief Executives to pose that question to all their members. And the answer they gave me is that they thought the appreciation of the Canadian dollar was gonna be temporary. We would depreciate the Canadian dollar, and their profitability skated back on on side, kind of to be a little bit harsh as sort of that lazy manufacturers hypothesis. And then, of course, if you look at the results of investment in 2007, in the beginning of 2008, it did indeed start to pick up. And then, of course, it got hammered during the global financial crisis and the ensuing recession. So I guess eventually they did get that measures, but I would sort of like to see, and I would feel much more comfortable if I were a policy authority, if I could point out some more tangible evidence of the corporate tax relief that has been offered, has done more on the investment side than I think seems to be the
0: case. Uh, looking through the shadow budget bill, looks like you want me to work longer. Yes. You and, keep yeah. coming back to the idea of increasing the point before I qualify for OAS and CPP.
1: Well, I won't inquire about your exact date of birth. Uh, whether it would affect you or not depends on what kind of a phase in there is. But there's a lot of focus in this shadow budget on things that affect retirement. And um, in fact, you can go right back to the start of this conversation where we were looking at the prospects for growth in the economy, the demographic headwinds. And then I mentioned the need for us to be able to finance investment. And there are a number of things uh, that affect saving and how long people work uh, that we've bundled together in a a section that affects seniors. And some of them would be seen as kind of bad news for people who are hoping to retire at the earliest possible date. Um, But others would be uh, seen as good news. I mean, one of the things that can tend to tip people over uh, into retirement when they might otherwise have chosen to work is the fact that you can't save in a tax-deferred vehicle anymore after age 71, and in fact, you have to start drawing your assets down. Um, We think that that doesn't make any sense. People are living longer uh, with interest rates as low as they are now. Interest rates yields on safe investments that are appropriate for somebody who's getting into their 70s or 80s or 90s being as low as they are. Uh, It does not make sense for the government to be forcing them to run down their assets just so they can collect the money now uh, as opposed to a few years later. Uh, there are other measures as well, but in general, what we've done is we've said there are a lot of things that make people who save in RRSPs or maybe in defined contribution pension plans uh, less well off than they would be than than some of the people that are saving in defined benefit plans, uh, often in the public sector. And many of the differences there are related to policy. There are things that we could do to make it easier for people to save longer, uh, make it easier for people to be, feel confident they weren't going to run out of uh, their savings before uh, they run out of time. And so I, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And I think it'd be helpful in terms of encouraging people to stay in the workforce longer if that's what they'd like to do, and also to keep saving for longer than they otherwise are able to do.
0: So Don, what do you make of the idea of raising the normal age of eligibility for old age security and the Canada pension plan from 65 to 66? And that starts in 2023. And it's phased in between then and 2025.
2: So as a former civil servant, I've kind of make it a habit to stay away from the political side, but there's one political decision that was made that baffled me at the time, and to this day, it still baffles me. Yes. And that is the liberals reversing what the conservatives have done or raising the age of entitlement. I think that's the right policy move. It has to bear a relationship to how long we live. And man, I've, I've done this. I was there very much involved in the CPP reform. You don't have to go back very far that people unfortunately didn't live all that long after they retired. And that's not the case right now. If you live until you're 85, you could well be living as long in retirement as you worked, And you have to respect that. And if particularly if you're gonna have defined benefit plans, that has to be in sync. And I just for the life of me cannot understand why an incoming government would have just left that alone. And if anybody criticized it, just hang it all on the conservatives. They didn't, the liberals didn't even do it themselves. So. I don't see that as a political winner. I think they had an opportunity to stay in the sweet spot on the policy and not taking the political flack for it. Now they put themselves in an unenviable position. I think they're going to have to do it at some point and they'll take some flack for it because they'll be seen to have done it. But. You have to revise those age of entitlements and coordinate with longevity.
0: Bill, you split the difference. Originally, I believe Minister, the late Minister Flaherty made it 67, you're saying 66.
1: Well, what we've done is we've got a formula that uh, has actually worked in some countries. Uh, it sounds a little clinical, uh, but in uh, Sweden, for example, the age of entitlement for public pensions does change over time as the demographic statistics change and as longevity changes. And so, what we're doing is we're proposing something like that here. Um, one of the I, I share Don's dismay at what the government did on the way in. It was one of those populist things that uh, you know undoubtedly made an attractive plank uh, in the platform. Uh, but it it casts a very long shadow forward. One of the advantages that we have as we make these adjustments going forward is that we've now established that with the old age uh, pension OAS, as with the CPP, you can uh, collect a richer pension if you delay. uh, And and, and that's a very nice thing to have because that means there's an element of choice. Uh, If somebody who, for whatever reason, Uh, is kind of uh, impatient to collect early, uh, maybe not in good health, um, can do that. And then the people who are uh, willing to wait for longer in order to collect more later can, can do that. And so I think that raising the kind of standard age of entitlement uh, in some way that reflects uh, increasing longevity does make sense. And then for the each individual, you've always got that safety valve. If you've got that mechanism that enables people to collect earlier or later, uh, from a fiscal point of view, that's going to cost a little bit of money because people will presumably choose what suits them rather than the government. But it does mean that you're avoiding a sort of cliff edge where everybody, regardless of their life expectancy or life circumstances, is faced with exactly the same regime.
0: As we bring this conversation to a close, Don, as we await the March 19th document landing on our desks, what's the biggest thing you'll be looking for on the 19th?
2: Uh, just how they balance this policy and politics. So the policy unambiguously suggests moving, at least if not to surfaces, at least back to balanced budgets. But the politics probably suggesting that that sounds kind of harsh leading into an election and just to see how much they give into the temptation of trying to throw out a few more goodies when they've got six more months to do so.
1: Well, I'll uh, just expand a little bit on one point Don made. Uh, We haven't touched on one of the biggest uh, sources of increased spending in the last few years, and that's the federal government's own operating costs. Uh, What has grabbed more headlines has tended to be some of the increases in transfer payments, um, and uh, and not, not so much on the tax side, although lately they've done a little bit uh, there. Um, but a big uh, a share of the federal government's costs are simply its internal costs. Uh, and it's odd to see the kind of increases in employment and uh, increases in compensation that have occurred at the federal government because it doesn't deliver a whole ton of frontline services. Uh, they're not the ones providing most of the health care in the country. They're not the ones providing most of the education in the country. Um, and a lot of what they do do isn't that labor intensive. I mean, they write a lot of checks and they collect a lot of tax, um, but not all of that requires, uh, uh, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. So, there is room for them to trim some of that back. Now, it's not going to be very convincing if they just suddenly project that after all these years of very big increases in spending they're suddenly going to be making all these savings without detailing where they come but it is possible for them to set a more prudent spending path and we'd like to see that Uh, i hope that we will and i think a lot of other people would like to see that as well
0: gentlemen thank you so much for your time you're welcome thank you my guests have been the queen's university economist don drummond and cd howe president and ceo bill robson For more on the Shadow Budget 2019, visit cdhow.org. The 2019 Canadian federal budget lands March 19th. You've been listening to
2: the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank
0: you.